This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have today to fellowship around the teaching of your word. It is your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is your word that you use to sanctify us, to mature us, to teach us uh, your will, teach us about your plan and purposes in human history, and it is your word that is absolute truth. Now, Father, as we continue our study this morning on understanding the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that we might have a greater appreciation for who he is and all that was accomplished for us in our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who is Jesus? That is a question that is... On the lips of our culture right now, I think I pointed this out last week, but there are two culturally significant things going on right now. One is the publication of this mystery novel, suspense novel, The Da Vinci Code, which is going to be made into a movie that's supposed to be released next year. And at the core of the plot of The Da Vinci Code is just some of the most egregious heresy about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that you'll run across. And one of the things that's happened as a result of the, the, uh, this book, which I, according to the last analysis I saw, spent 36 weeks in the New York Times, on the New York Times bestseller list, that this book is spawning a, a, almost a cottage industry of nonfiction books based on the Gnostic Gospels, based on certain Roman Catholic sects, based on decoding the Da Vinci Code. All kinds of things are going to be hitting the marketplace in the next few months, not to mention the movie that's going to come out sometime uh, next year. On top of that, we have the release this last week of The Passion of Christ. I know some of you have gone to see that already. I got bogged down with some computer problems, missed it on Thursday. I probably won't get to see it till the end of this week. But if you want to go see it, I would encourage you to read through the gospel account several times before you go so that you can create that, that grid of discernment in your own mind so that you can see what in, in the movie is biblical, what was added either by the director or some other extra biblical source that came up, that he came up with just to uh, make sure that you are not picking up a lot of images and ideas that aren't biblical. The trouble with a movie of this nature, with these powerful images, is that often what will happen, and we saw the same thing, remember, with, ten, with the Ten Commandments. How many people in are there who think that you know, Moses looks like Charlton Heston? Or think that, that Pharaoh looks like Yul Brenner? And how many Christians think that the Pharaoh of the Exodus was Ramses II, and that's not true. So we have to be careful when we go to a movie like this because the images are going to be so profound and so powerful that they will impact your thinking. So the best thing to do to 
guard yourself prior to that is to study the Word, read through all the different gospel accounts five or six times, make sure you have that firmly in your mind, and maybe if you if you take your kids, uh, it's up to you as to how old your kids should be if you're going to take them because of the violence that's in the movie, but if you take your kids, make a family contest of finding out who can pick the most errors in terms of contrasting it with Scripture. See, the value of doing something like that is it immediately gets you thinking analytically and not passively when you go to a movie of this type. I used to do that with the Ten Commandments. I would teach, I've taught Exodus a few times, at the end of which we would watch the, watch the movie, the Ten Commandments, and give a prize to whoever picked out the most biblical errors in the movie. And so that teaches you to, to not just sit there and just passively receive all of these, uh, various impressions. Well, with these two things going on in our culture, the publication of the Da Vinci Code and I am working on a book review, which I will incorporate in this series probably in the next two or three weeks that will deal with the issues there. Uh, that book plus the movie, we need to be prepared to answer the question. First Peter 3.15 says that we are to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. So we need to be prepared to answer the question. Let's say you're at work and you're witnessing to somebody or somebody's just read the Da Vinci Code or somebody's gone to see the Passion of Christ. They've picked up certain ideas that are floating around in, in one or both of these uh, media and you start talking to them about Jesus Christ. And they say, well, how do you know that Jesus Christ was God? How do you know? And you start to quote the Scripture. And Let's say this person says, well... What about these other Gospels? What about these Gnostic Gospels? What about, and then they pull a line out of the Da Vinci Code, what about these, you know, the fact that what all the early church fathers did was they went through some 70 or 80 different Gospels and they just selected the uh, four that they liked the best. Well, you know, there's some historical errors there. First of all, there aren't 80 different apocryphal Gospels. There's only about uh, a dozen or 15 apocryphal Gospels. So there's a lot of historical misinformation and disinformation. And so as a believer, you need to be prepared with biblical data and historical data to be able to set forth a, a biblical case. That doesn't mean that you have to go prove biblical inerrancy to them in a witnessing situation, but it does mean that when these questions come up, you need to be able to demonstrate that, that whoever you're talking to has, has really picked up a lot of false information from various uh, sources. So we have to be aware of what the Bible teaches. We have to be aware of historical developments in church history so that we can be more adequately prepared when we are witnessing or interacting with friends or family uh, over over the gospel. Now, we are in the midst of this series on who Jesus Christ is. This is, I believe, the 10th lesson in who Jesus Christ is. We started off looking at the Old Testament. I did this intentionally because one of the claims, one of the claims that comes out of this this modern uh, distortion is that the concept of the deity of Christ and his his uh, substitutionary atonement are merely uh, doctrines that were invented or developed in about the second, late second, third, or maybe even the fourth century A.D. And that these were were not, you know, Jesus was just a man. The mod, modern human viewpoint in our culture wants to affirm that Jesus was a great prophet. He was a good teacher. But uh, God, no. Savior, no. The only way to heaven, no. They they want to affirm that somehow God God is good. And I've gone over the Lord, liar, lunatic argument enough times here to where you ought to automatically go to that, that Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be the one and only way to heaven. Now, either he was telling the truth or he was lying. If he was lying, then he can't be a great prophet or he can't be a great teacher. If he is lying because he's self-deceived, then he's nuts. He's a lunatic. So you have to be able to use various arguments like this in order to uh, re- show the unbeliever 
or to reveal the emperor's new clothes that he's trying to put on his rejection of Christianity because that's the, the what happens is that unbelief wants to uh, take what the scripture says and change it, challenge it, modify it, and somehow dismiss it. So we started off by looking at the fact that the Old Testament clearly prophesies a divine Messiah, that the Messiah would be God, Son of God, Psalm 2, that he would be called God with us, Emmanuel, Isaiah 7:14. Numerous other passages indicate the deity of the Messiah. We also pointed out Old Testament prophecy, that the Messiah would be a man. He would be born of a virgin. He would be a descendant of David, a descendant of Abraham. All of these indicate that the Messiah would be both God and man. This isn't something that was invented by the early church. It wasn't even something invented in the New Testament. It is something that goes back to the early chapters of Genesis. It runs throughout the entire Old Testament. It didn't come along at some late date. Now, I pointed out in the last few weeks that there are really two key events in the life of Christ around which everything seems to hinge. If you lose either of these, there is no Christianity. The first is the virgin birth. The virgin birth is non-negotiable because if you lose the virgin birth, you lose the deity of Christ. The second is the resurrection. If Christ is not raised, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, then we are all fools, then we're wasting our time. There is no victory over death. We're not dealing with the resurrection in this series on the person of Christ, but we will be dealing with that on the first hour because next Sunday morning we will begin our study of 1 Corinthians 15. We're focusing on the virgin birth. The virgin birth is the means by which the deity joins itself to genuine humanity. The eternal second person of the Trinity takes on true humanity. It is in the virgin birth that God makes it possible for the Messiah to be born without two things. We studied this last time. I said that there were three key things accomplished in the virgin birth that are necessary. The first was prophetic fulfillment. The fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah 7:14, going back to Genesis 3:15, that the Savior, the Messiah, would be born of a virgin. The second was that there would be no uh, indwelling sin. No indwelling sin. That means no sin nature. Third thing accomplished by the virgin birth is no imputation. of Adam's original sin. Therefore, there's no guilt uh, related to Adam's original sin. And you have a Savior that is born free from any sin or sin penalty. This means we have a Savior who can be impeccable, that is, without sin, and therefore go to the cross and die for us. If you lose the virgin birth, you lose the doctrine of impeccability. Because if Jesus is not born of a virgin, then he would have received a sin nature passed on genetically through a male father, and there would have been an imputation of Adam's original sin. He would have been a man just like every other man. He would have been a human being just like every other human being in terms of having a sin nature and Adam's original sin. He is a human being like every other human being, but without sin. Because of the virgin birth, there is a block on the transmission of a sin nature, and not having a sin nature, there is no home for the imputation of Adam's original sin. That is the background for understanding the importance of the of the, the of the virgin birth and his deity. This is where we're starting this morning is the New Testament teaching on the deity of Christ. We've seen the Old Testament prophecies that related to the divine Messiah. Now we're going to look at the evidence in the New Testament that Jesus was fully God. 
Then we will come back and look, when we finish this study, we will look at the evidence in the New Testament for his humanity. But first of all, the deity of Christ. The first line of evidence for his deity has to do with the names, the names or titles given to the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So we'll begin with the titles of Christ which teach his deity, the titles of Christ which teach his deity. The first title that emphasizes his deity is the Logos, the Word. The Logos, the Word. This is found in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, as we look at this particular verse, which is one of the most significant and important verses in the New Testament for understanding who Jesus Christ is, We have to begin by looking at the verbs. Three times you have the verb ain in the the Greek, which is the imperfect active indicative form of the verb ami. The verb ami is called an existential verb. That's a nice, well, we'll have to play with the computer for a minute. See if we can get the signal. Oh, almost had it. We're still playing with the signal. There we go. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. It, Ain or me is called an existential verb. There are two existential verbs, and what that means is these are verbs of existence, that something comes to be or something is. When you say so-and-so is, you're saying something exists. When you're say, saying something comes into existence, something happens, that's an, another word that is also used in John 1, 1 and following, and that is the uh, verb genomai, Jesus is that is the verb ami Jesus was the logos was in contrast to John who comes to be genomai so these are the two uh, existential verbs or verbs for existence in the greek and this verb in John 1:1 1, 1 is in the imperfect uh, tense and what that means is in in greek you have two past tenses one is um, continuous ex- action, and the other just summarizes the action. So when you look at this verb, and it's an imperfect active indicative, it means that it's emphasizing continuous existence in past time. So we could translate it, in the beginning was the word. That is, the word continuously existed in past time. So at that point of time called the beginning, the word was already in existence, was in continuous existence, and would continue to exist. So the verb emphasizes the eternality of the logos. The uh, Greek word translated uh, word in the English is the word logos, L-O-G-O-S, which means word, reason, thing, matter, thought, study, logic, or communication. It has a variety of other meanings. Its core concept is a word which, from which all of the other things come. It has to do with logic, the expression of communication. Now, of course, the Greek word logos was a word that came loaded with baggage from Greek philosophy. But it also has a lot of baggage from the Old Testament. In fact, it is the equivalent to the rabbinic word that was used, memra, which related to the concept in the Old Testament where you'll hear a prophet say, the word of the Lord appeared to me or came to me and said. And that indicates that it's not just the... It, he's, when, when you have that phraseology, the word of the Lord came to me, 
The prophet isn't saying the message came to me. He is using that phrase, the word of the Lord, as a title because the word speaks. So this is a title for the pre-incarnate Christ. And then it is picked up in John chapter 1 where John applies it to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the very concept of logos emphasizes something that goes far beyond the incarnation and manifestation of the second person of the Trinity in the New Testament. And this word logos runs throughout John 1. John 1, 2, we're told he was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things came into being through him, that is, through the logos. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Then we skip down to John 1.14 and we read, And the Word became flesh. This is the incarnation. This is the virgin birth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Six observations we can make on this title in John chapter 1. First of all, he already was. That is continuous existence in, in the beginning. It emphasizes his pre-existence. He already was when the beginning began. Second thing, he was with God. It's the Greek preposition pros, meaning face-to-face with God. This emphasizes the fact that he is a distinct person from God. The Lagos is not identical to God the Father. There is a distinction in person there. He is God, but he is distinct from God. The Lagos is with God, emphasizing a distinct person. This this develops into the doctrine of the Trinity. Third, we know that from, from verse 1 that he was God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that means that all attributes of deity are ascribed to Jesus Christ as the Lagos. Fourth thing we learn from John 1.14, and that is that he is the one who, uh, or excuse me, John 1.18, he is the ultimate revelation of God to man. John 1.18 states, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now this is crucial. Christianity is almost stands and falls on this principle here. If Jesus Christ, let me back up a minute. The point is that Jesus Christ is the fullest, highest expression of God. Jesus claimed that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've known me, you can know the Father. If Jesus Christ is not fully God, then we can't know the Father. If Jesus Christ is not fully God, we haven't seen the Father. If Jesus Christ is not fully God, then we have an incomplete understanding of who God is. And and that is one of the things that, one of the important elements of the deity of Christ. Because he is fully God and equal to God, we have a full and sufficient, not exhaustive, but a sufficient revelation of who God is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is the ultimate revelation of God to man. If he is not God, we don't know God. We only know a creature. We have no real understanding or perception of who God is. Fifth observation, he became flesh. The Word became flesh, John 1.14. He became a human being, therefore he is the God-man. He entered into human history. The Word pre-existed. The virgin birth. We know from other passages, including John 1 1, that that pre existence is eternal. So he is full deity and he became flesh. Deity added humanity to itself. He didn't change the deity, but he adds humanity to himself so that he is the God man. And sixth, we learn from verse 3 
that all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. And that is the word uh, genomai in the uh, aorist tense, or imperfect tense, excuse me, aorist tense, and that emphasizes the fact that that everything was created by him. He is the creator, therefore he is God. It just summarizes, the aorist tense simply summarizes all of this past action into one concept. He created everything. As the creator, he is God. So we have six observations based on the title of the Lagos in John 1.1, or actually in John chapter 1. Another title for Christ is also given in John 1. We find it in a few other passages as well. And this is the title, Begotten, the only begotten Son of God. And this is based on the Greek word monogenes. Monogenes, and we find it in John 1.14, John 1.18, John 3.16 and 3.18, Hebrews 11.17, and 1 John 4.9. Monogenes means unique or one of a kind. It is a compound word. Now, there's some controversy over what the compound is all about. There's some that take it that monos means one, and the second half is genes, meaning birth, meaning a uniquely born one. But this word really relates to Jesus prior to his birth. He is the only begotten of God. The second word here should be is derived from the verb genao, which indicates um, a kind. It is that idea of a, of a genus that we get from the Latin word genus or species. It's a category. It means he is one of a kind. He is unique. And it's a word that's used of, of uh, Isaac, that he is not simply the uniquely born one of Abraham, but he is the unique son of Abraham. He's not Abraham's only son. Abraham had other sons. He had Ishmael first, and then he had uh, other sons through uh, Keturah and his and his other wives. So uh, Isaac is the unique child of Abraham. Jesus Christ is the unique uh, son of God. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God. See, there it's not talking about the son in terms of birth. See, we get that idea of sonship and birth in terms of beginning. But as we studied in Psalm 2, when we did that in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God. He doesn't become the son of God at any point in history. He is eternally the son of God, and therefore the early church fathers understood this, and they used the phrase, the eternally begotten son of God. That is the, the phrase begotten doesn't mean born, doesn't imply a beginning. It is a, a term that is used to indicate the eternal relationship between God the Father and God the Son. The next term that is used to describe or title that's used for Jesus is the term firstborn. Firstborn. And this derives from the Greek word prototakos. Prototakos, and it's applied to Jesus in five passages. Romans 8.29, Colossians 1.15, and 18, Revelation 1.5, and Hebrews 1.6. I'll read those again. Romans 8.29, Colossians 1.15, and 18, Revelation 1.5, and Hebrews 1.6. Now, the problem is that to us, the term firstborn indicates the order of birth, the one who is born first as opposed to second. But in the Bible and in the ancient Near East, this term described priority. It described a position of rank rather than chronology. And we see this word applied to Jesus in in a number of passages. I just want to show you two of them. Romans 8.29, 1 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. That has to do with rank or privilege. Colossians 1.18 He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Now, it is true that he is firstborn from the dead chronologically in the sense of receiving a resurrection body. There were those who were resuscitated in the Old Testament, but they did not receive a resurrection body. Uh, resuscitated in the New Testament, excuse me. But they did not receive a resurrection body, such as Lazarus. They were brought back to life, and they lived a normal, normal life, human life, until they uh, died physically. Uh, the term prototakos indicates firstborn or rank. Now, there's a Hebrew background to understanding this, and that is the law of primogenitor. The law of primogenitor. Under the law of primogenitor in the ancient world, P-R-I-M-O-G-E-N-I-T-U-R-E, the firstborn or the oldest received a double inheritance because he is the firstborn. But if he fell out of favor with his father, he could be replaced by a younger brother. And there are several examples of this in Scripture. For example, when uh, Jacob gets the birthright from Esau, Jacob becomes the firstborn, even though he is second in terms of chronological order. There are, in fact, there is a principle in Scripture, which is a demonstration of God's grace, that the younger serves the elder. See, God reverses the human pattern. The elder serves uh, the yeah. The younger serves. Excuse me, I've got that backwards. The elder serves the younger. The elder serves the younger. For example, Ishmael was older, but he serves Isaac. Esau is older, but he serves Jacob, Genesis 27. Reuben is older, but he serves Joseph, Genesis 4, verse uh, that should be Genesis 43. Reuben served Joseph. Manasseh serves Ephraim. Genesis 48, 13 through 20. Manasseh serves Ephraim. Genesis 48, 13 to 20. Aaron is the older, but Aaron serves Moses in the book of Exodus. The Gentiles serve Israel. Exodus 4, 22. Israel comes much later in history, and Israel is going to be served by the Gentiles. Adonijah, who's the older son of David, serves Solomon, 1 Kings 1.5. Those are just a few examples of the principle of the uh, uh, older or the younger serving uh, be, being an authority over the older, the younger being an authority over the older. Point number five, when the younger son is elevated, when the younger son is elevated, he becomes the firstborn in terms of rank. He becomes the firstborn in terms of rank. Let me give you those, for those of you who wonder where the numbers came from, the first point is the term firstborn indicates order of birth, not origin. The second point's the Greek word prototakos and its meaning of firstborn, Colossians 118 and Romans 829. Third point, the Hebrew background, the law of primogenitor. Fourth point, younger serves the, uh, the older serves the younger. Fifth point, the younger son, when he's elevated, becomes the firstborn in terms of rank. And then the sixth point, our conclusion, Christ is the firstborn because he deserves he deserves the preferential share in honor and inheritance.
So that is our th- that is our third term. First term logos, second term monogenes, third term prototokos, fourth term Jesus is referred to as Lord. Jesus is referred to as Lord. This is the Greek noun kurios. The Greek noun kurios. And kurios was used as a term for Yahweh of the Old Testament. Now the term kurios had three different senses in the ancient world. The first sense is that it was used simply as a title of respect for someone who was a landowner or someone who was uh, in a position of aristocracy. And we have that same kind of use today. For example, we refer to those in the uh, uh, in English aristocracy as lords. So it was used in that sense as a as a title. Second, it was used to refer to someone who uh, it was used in a sense of a protocol in addressing someone in authority, much as we use the term sir in English. We address someone with authority by the title sir, so that that would be the term Lord or Curios. So if you're speaking to someone uh, who's in authority, someone of prestige, then you might refer to them as a Lord or Curios. And the third use is the sense of deity. That is the way it was used to translate uh, Yahweh from the Old Testament. And Jesus is referred to as Curios in the sense of deity in a number of different passages. Uh, Matthew 8, 2, Matthew 20, 33, uh, Matthew 22, 43 to 45, Luke 2, 11, Acts 2, 36, Acts 20, 28, Philippians 2, 11, and Revelation 19, 16. There are numerous places where Jesus is referred to as Lord, and that means deity. That This is what is meant when the Scriptures emphasize the fact that we must accept Jesus as, as Lord. He is not that we must accept him as master, not that you make Jesus Lord of your life, which is the, the lordship heresy, but that you recognize that Jesus Christ is God. For example, Acts 2.36. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And that's emphasizing the fact that he is deity. He is the Messiah. So it's not a sense that we make him Lord. You can't make him Lord. He is Lord. He is God. And then Jesus Christ is also given the title of Theos, or God. This is the Greek noun for God. He is called God in a number of places in the New Testament. In John 1.1, the word was God. John 1.18, he is the only begotten God. John 20, verse 28 is another passage. Romans 9.5, unimportant and crucial passage in the New Testament is Titus 2.13. Titus 2.13. This is one of the foundational passages to indicate that Jesus Christ is fully God. We're looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in the Greek syntax of Titus 2.13, you have something operating called the Granville-Sharp Rule. Now, the Granville-Sharp Rule operates when you have a an article, noun, conjunction, noun, construction. Normally in the Greek, if these two nouns are distinct, you would repeat the article. But if these two nouns are viewed as being synonymous then you have an article with the first noun, but no article with the second noun. And when you have the construction God and, with the conjunction Chi, Savior, there's an article with Theos, God, 
but no article was so tear Savior. Therefore, God and Savior are uh, synonymous, and Jesus Christ is called the great God and Savior in Titus 2.13, a key passage for understanding that New Testament writers were clearly affirming deity to the Lord Jesus Christ. Other passages would be Hebrews 1.8 and 1 John uh, chapter 5, verse 20. So these titles all are used in the New Testament indicating that Jesus Christ is fully God. It's not something that's made up by Constantine in the 4th century. It's not something that uh, later church writers decided that, that they would add just to boost their uh, position and prestige and claim that Jesus was God. This is, this is the claim of modern liberalism. So the titles indicate that Jesus is God. Furthermore, he has, is attributed, uh, or is given the attributes of deity. If you read through the gospel accounts, he displays the attributes of deity. It's very easy to demonstrate this. We see, uh, I've got ten points here that we'll run through just to show that he has these attributes of, each, uh, of, of deity that are consistently attributed to him in the New Testament. For example, he is given the attribute of eternality. He has eternal life. We've already looked at John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. He already existed. You could also look at John 8, 58, Colossians 1, 17, and Hebrews 1, 11. He has eternality. He pre-existed the incarnation, and he is eternal. Another, a second category of deity, or second attribute of deity attributed to Jesus, is immutability. He never changes. God never changes. He is immutable. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He never changes. You can also look at Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. Third, Jesus is self-existent. See, this is an attribute of, of deity. God is self-existent. The name Yahweh in the Old Testament, which is the uh, sacred tetragrammaton because it involves only four consonants, Y-H-W-H, comes from the Hebrew verb, Hayah, H-A-Y-A-H. And you see the Y-A-H here is your root in Yahweh, and this is the basic existential verb in Hebrew, meaning to be. So that Yahweh has at its essential meaning as I am. I am who I am. I am the self-existent one. God is not dependent upon anything else or anyone else for his existence. The principle of existence is in him. He is completely self-existent. This is also attributed to the Lord Jesus Christ in John 1.4 and John 5.26. John 1.4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Life or existence is in him. It is an essential property of who Jesus Christ is. Furthermore, he has eternal life. As a, he not only is self-existent, he has eternal life. This is another category of deity. He is eternal, he has eternal life and can give that life. It is not a derived life. It is an inherent life. Uh, John 1.4, which we just looked at, John 14.26, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So he is self-existent, and he has life in himself. Fifth, we are told that the fullness of deity dwells in him. That is the use of the noun uh, pleroma which indicates all that is contained in deity. Every attribute of deity is in Jesus. This is Colossians 2.9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Another key passage on the deity of Christ. So this isn't something that's invented later on. He is attributed 
holiness, Hebrews seven twenty six. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. A creature cannot be holy in the sense that the Creator is holy and without sin. So he is holy. Hebrews 7.26. Seventh, Jesus has the attribute of sovereignty. He is sovereign. He has all authority or ultimate authority in the universe. Matthew 28.18. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. There's only two categories of uh, there, heaven and earth. That includes everything, the entire universe, seen and unseen. He has all authority. Other passages that emphasize the sovereignty of Jesus Christ are John 5.27, John 17.2, Acts 2.36, 1 Corinthians 12.3, Philippians 2.9-10, Colossians 1.18, 1 Peter 3.22, and Revelation 19.16. I'll run through those one more time to make sure you got them. Matthew 28.18, John 5:27, 17:2, Acts 2:36, 1 Corinthians 12:3, Philippians 2:9 and 10, Colossians 1:18, 1, 1 Peter 3:22 and Revelation 19:16. All authority has been given to Jesus. This is related also to his omnipotence, the eighth uh, category of deity, the eighth attribute of deity given to Jesus. He is omnipotent according to passages such as Luke 8.25, John 10.18, 1 Corinthians 15.25 and 28, Philippians 3.21, Colossians 1.16 and 17, just to name a few, and one to look at Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God, that is Jesus Christ, in context, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He is omnipotent. He is the Almighty One. Revelation 1.8. Furthermore, Jesus is given the attribute of omniscience. He is all-knowing. Jesus has omniscience, which he displays in various uh, passages in the New, New Testament. For example, in John 1.48, he saw Nathaniel under the under the um, fig tree at, at a distance. Uh, he demonstrates that he knows what's in the hearts of people in John 2, uh, 25. Other passages are John 13, 1 and verse John 13, 1 and John 13, 11, John 16, 30, John 18, 4, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Colossians 2.3, in him all dwells all the fullness of, of the Godhead bodily. In Revelation 2.23, he is omniscient. Matthew 11.27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So he knows the Father, the Father's omniscient. So therefore, Jesus must also be omniscient to know the Father. And again, this reinforces what I've been emphasizing in this. If Jesus isn't God, we don't know the Father, because Jesus claims to be the highest expression of revelation of deity. So Christianity falls. If Jesus isn't God, you don't have Christianity. And yet you can go to denominational church after denominational church in this country, and they don't believe in the full undiminished deity of Jesus Christ. That is why this this book, the uh, Da Vinci Code, is such an assault on Christianity, is because it just puts out all kinds of of uh, falsehoods under the guise and claim of historical accuracy that are all designed to undermine the deity of Christ. Okay, our tenth attribute is omnipresent. Jesus is is said to be omnipresent according to Matthew 18.20, Matthew 18.20, as well as Matthew 28.20. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He cannot be with us always 
unless he is omnipresent. Other passages that teach his omnipresence are John 3.13, John 14.13, John 14.20, and John 14.23. Once again, John 3.13, 14.13, 14.20, and 14.23. Because Jesus is God, he is able to go to the cross and die for our sins. He is going to be because of the virgin birth, free from sin, qualified to go to the cross to die on our sins. His deity doesn't die as our substitute. It is his humanity that bears the sin for us as our substitute. But if he is not God, he can't complete the mission. It is his deity and, and the virgin birth that enable him to go to, the, go to the cross and to have a substitutionary atonement that has infinite value and to have a righteousness that can qualify to be imputed to us for our salvation. Therefore, Jesus Christ must be fully God. Now, next time we'll come back and look at other evidence in the New Testament that demonstrates that Jesus was who he claimed to be, that is, the perfect revelation of God. It is not something developed in history, not something generated by theologians or the early church, it is something that is, goes back to Genesis 3. It is something that was taught throughout the Old Testament, taught in all of the Gospels, claimed by Jesus, demonstrated by his life, and taught in the New Testament with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the clear revelation of Jesus Christ, that he is the one who speaks to us of you. He is the one who reveals you fully to us, and that through him we can know you. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Right where you sit, you can make that decision. All you need to do is trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of sin. It's not a matter of morality. It is a simple matter of faith alone and Christ alone. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to understand the things we've studied, that we may be more effective in our witnessing, dealing with the challenges that uh, are presented to us in our current situation in this country, the challenges to the deity of Christ, that we might be able to give an answer for the hope that is in us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.